This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. There's this story Daryl Hammond tells in the documentary film Cracked Up. Hammond was one of the players on Saturday Night Live, but for a good part of that time, he was addicted and drinking and hurting himself. He says one night he cut himself backstage, had to be taken from the studio right to a psychiatric hospital. And it wasn't the first time. He'd been in nine psychiatric facilities. He'd been in five detox programs. But it wasn't until one doctor explained to him that the reason he was hurting himself and self-medicating depression and anxiety was because he'd been abused by his parents, his mother in particular. Basically, the doctor told him this trauma had become fixed in his body and his brain and it changed his physiology. The filmmaker Michelle Esrick is a friend of Hammond's and her documentary Cracked Up tells this story. We're going to be screening the film next week. This is part of our film series, our partnership with the Utah Film Center. Michelle Esrick is joining us today to talk about the film. She says early in the process, Daryl told her something that completely changed her perspective on trauma. The way you've described it is it's sort of like a moment that changed everything, at least your perspective. Mm -hmm. And he said that a doctor had told him, don't call this a mental illness, call it a mental injury. This doctor said to me, mental illness is not an airborne virus. And this guy would say, and I don't really even want you to say mental illness. I want you to say mental injury. Let's tell the whole story. You're not this way by accident. When I heard that, I had such a physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, visceral response that just surged through my body, and I felt this wave of compassion for myself, for Daryl, for the whole world who was suffering from the wrong information. Um, That's how we all felt. Mm. But underneath that was a lot of shame and was underneath that is something's wrong with me. Yeah. It's not something happened to me, but something's wrong with me. Something's fundamentally wrong with me, and I'll accept it, and I'll do the best I can, and there's so many incredibly successful, you know, people and talented people and, um, you know, just people in general that that believe that. It's interesting. Dr. Cotby says to Daryl, and he explains this in the film, Mm-hmm. that he had a story that hadn't been diagnosed. He had a story mm-hmm. that hadn't yet been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. You have a story that's not diagnosed. When I came to in the hospital, I remember I didn't really kind of know where I was. Didn't have any cigarettes or money or anything. He had me for three months. Saw my every move. I remember saying to him, my brain is broken. He said, what it's telling you to do is to take the aircraft and nosedive it into the ground. So we're going to figure out why. It's very common to have repressed memories, like Daryl did not remember what had happened to him. Because the your brain can't register it's it's too much. It's too much for a child to, to register many things that, that, that could happen. And so the brain will lock it away. And one of the great doctors on this subject, a world-renowned trauma expert, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who mm-hmm. is in the film, he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. To me, it is the definitive book on trauma. When your reality is not allowed to be seen and to be known, that is the trauma. When people have a memory of trauma, they see the face of the person. They smell the smell of the rapist. They feel the horrifying feelings in their body. I said it's an undigested memory. The sounds are still there and are stored somewhere, and the visual input is stored somewhere, and certain triggers can reinstate those sounds or those images. And you hear them again. And you see them again. Uh, so these are not really memories. These are just it's an activation of a fragment of something of the past. 
When you're five, you can't see that or you'll die. It's the brain's brilliant response to things it can't handle. They looked at my brain once on this brain imagery thing. They showed both sides of my brain. The left side of my brain was virtually dark. The right side of my brain was Times Square. I mean, and I was like, what's, why don't I have any lights on this left side of my brain? The guy goes, that is the side of your brain that is for logic, perspective, organization. From the film Cracked Up, we're going to be screening the film next week. We'll get back to our conversation with the filmmaker Michelle Esrick here in a moment. But first, Bessel van der Kolk is joining us. He's the founder and medical director of the Trauma Center at Brookline, Massachusetts, also a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. His book, Michelle Esrick, referred to The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Dr. van der Kolk has written about how we human beings are an extremely resilient species, that we've survived and rebounded from wars and disasters and tragedies. But make no mistake about it, he says, this trauma leaves traces, traces on our minds and our emotions for sure, traces on our capacity for joy and intimacy as well. But also, he says, it has a real effect on our biology and our immune systems. Dr. Van der Kolk is joining us from his home in Boston. And uh, Dr. Van der Kolk, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hi. Good day to you. I wanted to begin with one of the things you mention in your book is you say that we all want to move beyond trauma, but the part of our brain that's devoted to ensuring our survival is not very good at denial. Explain what you mean. Well, we have we basically, sorry, we have a, a number of different layers in our brain. And our core layer is there to help us to sleep and to eat and to survive. And that is a part of your brain that has no reason or no understanding. And if that gets set to perceive the world as being dangerous, um, you will feel anxiety and rage and all kinds of emotions that you really have very little control over. You mentioned how the erratic behavior of some trauma survivors are, um, as you put it in your book, this is not the result of a moral failing or a lack of willpower. This is an actual change in the brain. So let's talk a little bit about that. What exactly is changing? What exactly is happening? I know it's complicated, but give us a sense of it. Well, basically, there's two two big things change. One is uh, your normal reaction to threat is fight, flight. Um, and we all do that when we get threatened, we move away, we run away, or we fight back, and that's normal. But if you get traumatized, particularly when you're early, early in your life, you tend to get stuck in that fight-flight response and frequently start reacting to minor things as if your body is in danger. Hmm. And you start becoming very angry uh, or becoming very nervous, very upset, and you just feel these sensations and feelings in your body and these impulses. And uh, you tend to think to blame other people. It's because you did this or because you did that. But it's really because my brain uh, cannot really tolerate feeling a minor degree of threat and overreacts to all kind of information. Mm-hmm. That is one level. Okay? Yeah. So, so the brain is sending signals to the body to escape, even though the threat is long, long gone. Right. And of, or what's happening right now is just a minor little thing. Uh, your wife may disagree with you, or you may be disappointed about something, or uh, things are a little bit upsetting. But your whole being goes into feeling that this is a catastrophe and mm. this is going to be my end. So. You one one adaptation is to overreact and to really uh, blow up and to become extremely aroused, and then people around you go like, "This person has gone nuts." Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's and you don't know where it comes from. Right. And uh, the second thing, and Daryl really suffers from both of them, is uh, you shut yourself down. And so if you have a parent who tortures you, as happened in his case. And, case of many, many people I've treated, um, you have the parents who you have, so you somehow survive. Mm. 
and you survive by shutting yourself down and and just not feeling large parts of your reality. And basically, you, you can actually see this on brain scans that certain parts of the brain sort of disappears under certain uh, conditions and don't get activated. So your brain says, this is not happening. And, and you space out and you leave your body and you are not present and you are not engaged. And uh, people say you have checked out or you're not paying attention. Very common in traumatized kids in school systems, for example. Mm. They cannot learn because their bodies are too shut down. Uh, so that shutting down is one part and the other, the twin of that is the fight flight. And in various people, uh, different proportions of these two things tend to occur over over time. And then so you have this body that doesn't work. Yeah. And so you try to deal with it and you think maybe alcohol will work or maybe cocaine will work or maybe opioid drugs will work or maybe, and so you try many things, compulsive exercise or uh, or stuffing yourself with food. And so people desperately try to control these internal sensations and you have really have no idea what you're trying to control because what you're going to control is the imprint of this past horror on your survival brain. Mm. You write in your book how the trauma that traumatized people become s- stuck, you know, stopped in their growth that you were talking about because they can't, as you said, yeah. you know, integrate new experiences into their lives. And and you write also that that after this trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. What it, what it, what do you mean there? Yeah, after a trauma, you you see the world through the lens of danger and annihilation, basically. Mm. Uh, so you may go to a party and uh, a firecracker will go off or something else reminds that primitive pain of yours of danger and you'll start behaving as if you're about to die. Uh, and so you automatically blow up or you shut down and then you feel so crazy inside that you become depressed and suicidal because you don't want to live with that body that you that puts you into trouble all the time. That's mm. very much also Daryl's story is that yeah. I, I cannot tolerate all the crazy things that I do and you don't know where it comes from. And if you go to a doctor who doesn't know about trauma, they will label you and fill you up with drugs and then they'll say, don't take drugs, but be compliant to take my drugs. Right. Uh, but the issue is that drugs don't really work all that well. And you need to really rewire that brain of yours to be, to be safe. Give me a sense of um, how you think the field of medicine is handling this now. You mentioned, and Daryl talks about in the film, all these misdiagnoses that he had over the years. Um, but you write about how when you began your medical training, how little psychiatrists knew about the origins of the problems that they were treating. What are you seeing th- yeah. now? Well, there's so many worlds, you know, like the world that I live in and my colleagues live in. We all see the things and we're all treating people and a lot of people are very good at, at doing this work. And that is one group of people. In mainstream medicine, there still is this uh, labeling process of you have a disorder and that comes very much from as a legacy of psychiatry having sold itself to the drug companies mm-hmm. and saying we're, we're going to find a drug for everything that's wrong with human beings. Uh, and so this, this old, that labeling system that came into being is, uh, is really the legacy of that optimism that we, we had 40 years ago that we could really help people with medications and resolve their problems. That didn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few people are helped by drugs, but most people aren't. What does this do, doctor, or how does this work with memory? Because you said that people don't actually have a recollection about trauma. Trauma. It doesn't allow you to create a story, is how you've put it. They don't see well, it as a story. They, they do and they don't. Huh. And, you know, like uh, at Yale, they did a very exhaustive study of how people remember the Holocaust. Having been in an extermination camp, and the whole spectrum of things. Some people remember everything, and other people remember nothing. Hmm. And other people remember things sometimes, 
and not, nothing at other times. I testified on behalf of many people who were abused by Catholic priests. And uh, they indeed went through long periods of time and they didn't remember anything. And then suddenly these old feelings come up, but it comes up as a feeling. Suddenly mm-hmm. you feel scared or you feel panicked or you feel frozen. And then slowly over time, if you're lucky, you're able to begin to say, oh, this has to do with how I felt as a little kid and how I managed to put it together back then with the means that I had as a little kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for example, if your own parents or or your favorite priest molest you, um, as a kid, you have no options. You can't go like, oh, okay, I'm going to call the police and tell um, as a three-year-old to say, oh, my father is beating the shit out of me, excuse me, NPR, uh, uh, sorry, my father is beating me, and will you please protect me? So a kid learns to ignore that reality and have reactions but it has no recourse. Basically, a kid lives in the world that he or she lives in and creates a brain to cope with that environment. Mm-hmm. So is this so what... That kids are very different from adults. Right. As adults, we can go, hey, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore, and I'm going to take the car and get out of here. Kids can't do that. So kids get brains, develop brains, that help them to cope with whatever they have to cope with. This idea of of having a feeling does that is does that help explain what Daryl Hammond was going through in the sense that he was creating these colors? Right. Was it a well, similar I, thing? So it's interesting that there are so many creative solutions that kids have. Mm-hmm. So what what Daryl happened to create was this synesthesia of of seeing something and giving it a color, which had something to do with how his mom treated him. And what we see in the all the time is that uh, kids have very creative solutions to somehow manage to survive. But uh, no two people are the same. Uh, so have I seen other people with synesthesia? Yes, about two or three out of 2,000, let's say. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so kids have, have their own creative solutions uh, to cope with what they do. And that means sometimes they make new connections in their brain where certain things sort of come to fit together with other things on the sensory level. Um, some people become extraordinary musicians. Uh, some people become extraordinary writers. Mm. And sometimes kids cope by cultivating a piece of themselves that, is, that somehow manages to, to, to help them to survive in the world. Yeah. And so one thing we oftentimes see uh, is that some traumatized kids become extraordinarily... Uh, good at some small aspect of, of life, and then people think, oh, they're so resilient, they're so amazing. No, they have developed that capa- particular capacity as part of the survival mechanism, yeah. but they still get enraged, and they still get depressed, and they still are suicidal, and they blow up, and all that other stuff. Uh, this is just one way in which your brain has helped you to survive stuff back then. You've written about how, as you put it, the imprint of trauma is in an area of the brain that doesn't have access to cognition. So what's the difference between having a story, a clear, pragmatic, practical story, and a body memory? Because you talk about the difference between those two. Yeah. So so being able to to find a story, uh, as Daryl did at some point, and say, okay, this is what happened to me, and this is my, the reaction I have, is very helpful. But having the story doesn't make the symptoms go away. It gives you more of a sense of ownership of yourself and finding solutions to particular pieces of the puzzle. Mm. And so as long as you don't have a story, you just have reactions, and you just feel crazy. Uh, once you have a story, you can say, okay, that's why it's so hard for me. And so sometimes we, uh, you may date somebody and that person who you date will say to you, I have to warn you when I get very close to you, I may suddenly become suicidal and it may not be your fault. Mm. And uh, this is going to be hard on you, but that's part of what happens when you become close to me, for example. So the result of of trauma is all kinds of physical symptoms, you know, autoimmune diseases, chronic fatigue, all of those kinds of things. And so you talk about how it's critical for trauma treatment to engage, as you put it, the entire organism, the body, Mm. the mind, the brain. 
to get, so people can get back into their bodies, is how you've put it. What do you mean? That's, that's correct. So basically, the way I talk about it is your trauma is held in heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations. And so your body still is stuck there, and you need to find a way in which your body can feel safe. And some people uh, find, for example, yoga very useful for that. Or some people find martial arts very helpful. Or uh, being able to be a member of a choir where you sing together with people. Mm-hmm. You establish sense of, oh, this is what it feels like to feel safe together with other people. Uh, sometimes sports do it. So all kind of things that really don't fit in your medical or psychological model may be very helpful. Uh, and it mainly has to do with getting a sense of safety and synchrony with the people around you, where your body feels in tune with the people around you and doesn't get scared. You mentioned the real challenge uh, in your book. The real challenge is, as you put it, how can people gain control over the, as you say, the residues of past trauma and then return to being master of their own ship. And so I wanted to ask about that. Can these powerful moments that alter the person's physiology, can they be repaired? Can the brain in some way be rewired again? Well, it's a very good question. And certainly um, when you do the sort of work that I do, you find many methods and many people who have been able to do that. Mm. So people sometimes find their way. But it's it's always is a pilgrimage for people. People uh, try out one thing and it doesn't work, and they try something else, and then suddenly they find something like let's say uh, tai chi, or they find yoga, or they find a particular method and say, yeah, now I feel safe, now I feel well. Uh, and so uh, at this point we're not at, at the stage of we know um, can predict. Who will get better and who will get be- who will not get better and what particular method will work for a particular person. So we're still at the stage of trial and error. And so that's why in my book I really uh, give like five or six different methods, all of which have been helpful for many people but never for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we don't really know exactly whether or not this, you know, the, the, the score, as you put it, that the body keeps, whether that's, that trauma is fixed there, is settled there, and you can't really rid yourself of it, and you just have to treat the symptoms. Or we, I guess we just don't well, know exactly. Well, you see, this field is very young. Yeah. 30 yeah. years ago, it didn't exist. And so a very small number of people have been trying different methods. So by 2019... We know a number of methods that are helpful for some people. We don't know if they will work for everybody. But, for example, I hang out with quite a few people who work in prisons and work with severely traumatized prisoners who are the sort of people who explode and become very angry, etc., etc., got them into jail. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is in prisons, you sometimes have a, a captive audience, as it were, and you can do very deep meditation. With these prisoners and you see a dramatic change or I know of a number of other programs where people do um, very deep Shakespeare acting yeah. and by moving together and taking on a new role and feeling your body play a new role you see these dramatic changes but these are all methods that have not been funded by the National Institute of Health to uh, to have gigantic studies to see for whom it does work and doesn't work because this is a very much not the medical model stuff. So there's these two worlds side by side, hmm. the world of the mainstream medical model, which is not the right model for trauma, and there's the other world where people are helped to discover what makes them feel safe. That's Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He's founder of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. His book is The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. He joined us from his home in Boston. Doctor, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much. A great interview. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll get back to our conversation with Michelle Esrick uh, in just a moment. Cracked Up is the name of her film. We're going to be screening it next week. That's October 30th at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. You can get details on our website, KUER.org. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. 
Hey, it's Lee Hale, host of the Preach Podcast. This week, my guest is Sister Helen Prejean. Ah, faith. Faith is like a rolling wave. It's like riding a river. It flows. Even as a child, I had that thirst. We talk forbidden love, activism, and Sister Helen's more than 60 years as a Catholic nun. Find Preach wherever you get your podcasts or at preachpod.org. This is Radio Westenberg for Brizio. Today in the program, another film in our documentary series. This one is Michelle Esrick's examination of the effects of childhood trauma. She tells it through the story of the actor and comedian Daryl Hammond. The film is called Cracked Up. We're going to be screening it next week. We'll have details a little bit later on the program. At what point do you figure, I'm going to make a film about this? And the film's going to be about Daryl, but it's also going to be about a larger story. It's going to be, in some ways, mm-hmm. my own stories embedded in there as well. At what point did that come to you? So uh, Daryl and I have known each other for 20 years, uh, and we were hanging out as friends. Uh, he was writing, uh, developing his one-man show, uh, called the Daryl Hammond Project uh, with uh, Christopher Ashley, a great director and wonderful writer, Liz Stein. And he was complaining about having to type. He hated typing, and he said he had a deadline he had to meet, and he he just hated typing, and he couldn't get to the computer, and he had to finish the scene. And so just, you know, I was just trying to help out my friend, and mm. I said, how about if I type and you just tell the stories so he did that and he really liked this process it was you know just went smoothly and it, you, you see that in the film those are my hands typing right. my rings but I didn't want to talk to Daryl about it right away because here he was trusting me with his stories and I didn't want him to feel exploited so I didn't talk about it uh, right away after a month I just thought I just knew had I just knew in my soul this is going to help this is going to help people I mean a lot of people I just had this feeling this is going to help a lot of people and so uh, I don't know probably a month later we had I asked him to go to lunch and I just told him like I'm telling you you know uh, that I think this information you mean your story is incredible uh and he had written so he had written a book about it at that point now he was writing a play about it and i also said um if we made a documentary uh everybody would have access to it and everybody could be helped by it and you know without hesitation he said yes and let's do it we see him working on his play we see him doing stand up we see him having interactions we see him going back to his childhood home Talk a little bit about the way you were thinking about wanting to tell that story and get him to tell it. Because it's not just – I like that it's not just a static interview. Right, right, yeah. Well, I wanted – I mean, I wanted it to be experiential. Mm-hmm. I wanted the audience to experience – have some kind of experience that included empathy and compassion and understanding on a visceral level themselves, even if it was for a minute of mm-hmm. Daryl's experience. And I, But I also wanted it to reflect their own experience. Um, you just start filming and and hope it resonates with people, and it certainly seems to be. Yeah. It's interesting um, the way Daryl Hammond's voices have come to him, his impressions. He has this incredible gift, of course. And you get a sense in the film that in in some ways it was the the trauma, trying to please his mother, wanting adoration from a crowd that helped him develop these these voices. And this idea of him being he even sort of makes a joke about this up right up front when he's in the um in the studio at uh, Saturday Night Live talking about a makeup man who said that, he, you know, he says his he has one of these really bland faces that's so bland mm-hmm. that he can really take on and inhabit any kind of character. Mm-hmm. You know, they say there's some people that you can't make look like anybody. 
Like, you just can't make them look like somebody else. And then me, uh, Louie told me that um, you can make me look like anybody because my face is so bland. I love this candidate. You can run, but you can't hide. I had panic attacks. Jibbity, jibbity, and rat-a-tat-tat. Keep it rolling. I'm on a roll. Life itself is not fair. NBC and I agreed on a new deal. Battle of the sexes. Absolutely astounding. We appeared nude or semi-nude. <laughs> Tip a canoe and Tyler too. Hold on, my naked body into the hands of terrorists. I can read Trebek. Just a boring guy. My God, he can talk like other people. <laughs> and this just this idea of doing impressions, taking on these voices, seems a function of of the trauma that he experienced. Is is that right? Well, it's very layered. When you realize what happens in the movie. You 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 just got to sit back and say, wow, whoa, because his mother um, had the gift of doing voices of yeah. people in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, their friends. And he did receive the gift from his mother. Um, and to receive a gift from, you know, from somebody who was also your perpetrator is a very a very layered thing. When he did voices when he was a little boy, that was the only time his mother showered him with love. But as Whoopi Goldberg said when I asked, you know, about her, you know, calling Daryl a shapeshifter, she looked at it, that as a positive thing that he can, you know, use that gift to sort of, you know, get away mm -hmm. from the pain. So Daryl said you called him a shapeshifter. Is that true? Yes, he is a shapeshifter. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> it means that you will be okay because you can shift away when it's too freaky or too scary. Oh. You can just... It's interesting also that... We don't need to say too much about this because I don't want to give um, certain parts of the film away. But Daryl says he started doing impressions when he was young and they came to him in colors. Popeye came to him in a blue and Porky mm -hmm. was a yellow. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about that, about the way he is creating colors and a sense and a feeling about these voices. They don't just come from him. They seem to be embodied in something else that's going on in his body. Mm -hmm. Well, he has something called synesthesia. What's interesting is Daryl doesn't see the color. He says he feels the color. Right. Um, you know, that's how he learned his scripts, by marking them all up in different colors. And that when he was young and when he was in school, that's how he could really learn, by marking his, you know, homework up in, in colors. So it's really fascinating. There's a moment that... Um for Daryl Hammond when he's working on Saturday Night Live and they're going to do a Mother's Day special which means mm -hmm. for and they do they do this I think from time to time where the cast members will invite their mothers to play mm -hmm. roles in different sketches and stuff like that right, and right. Daryl having gone through the trauma that he had at the hand of his mother is not at all interested in his mother being a part of that so he puts on a costume to look like his mother, and he sees himself in a mirror. You looked in the mirror at yourself dressed up as your mother, and you saw your mother's face. Yeah. And you passed out and threw up? And no, I just threw up and mm. started to have a heart attack. Yeah. Wow. Literally a heart attack. Well, they took me to the infirmary, and my pulse, uh, I guess my heart rate was, or uh, my blood pressure was up around 200. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, it's like my brain was saying, rather than become her, I think we'll just pull the plug on the whole thing. You know, he was taken out of Saturday Night Live, not that time, but another time in a straitjacket. And that time was when he was doing, uh, I think, the Al Gore and Bush. Well, he was playing Al Gore, but it, the, the sketch was an Al Gore and uh, uh, Bush debate. Rather than squander the surplus on a risky tax cut for the wealthy, I would put it in what I call a lockbox. And he just 
really started having uh, what they call now, I would say he was having like a, a trauma discharge where he was probably maybe maybe who knows, maybe some memories were trying to come out. But he was he got very disoriented and just, you know, started to dissociate. And um, and he did go to the clinic, the nurse's clinic, and uh, he got taken out in a straitjacket. Yeah. Lauren Michaels says to you on the in the film that, um, or maybe it's um, Darrow was talking about, you know, Lauren's impression of him is that you know he. Why would Lauren entrust this show to this person? Crazy who's seen, person. Yeah, crazy person. That's how he puts it. They used to say to Lauren Michaels, "They're like, here's this crazy guy that." has been in all these nut houses. He's done more, he's opened your show more times than anyone. The most important turf in comedy. And Lauren's answer to that is danger calms him down somehow. I think there's a certain group of us that only feel alive when standing on knife point. That level of focus that's required from that brings some people up and uh, tears other people apart. In sports, they'd call him a big game player. And this is it seems like a theme in the film in some way, like that, that he has this danger and it gets to the idea that he cuts himself as well as mm-hmm. a way to sort of just keep himself from thinking about the trauma of his life. Mm-hmm. Well, it always happened off stage. Yeah. So... Daryl, you know, was hitting it out of the park every night. So he w- he was delivering, right? Mm-hmm. Because as Lauren says in the film, it always happened off stage. Um, and you know what I got out of interviewing Lauren Michaels, they they just love him over there, and I mean Lauren has a deep love for him, and you know they tried to get him help every time. You know, they saw him him suffering because Lauren says, you know, the fragile part of Daryl is my job to protect. Yeah. seemed like uh, Lauren called Daryl a, a big time player, one of those guys mm-hmm. who in, when danger was there, when the moment was on the line, you could count on him. And it's because I got the sense that this is one of those manageable crises that that you you talk about in in the film and for for Daryl when he was younger the manageable crisis the thing that that really um kept him from thinking too much about the trauma was cutting himself um talk a little bit about this because you've said that the the cutting is the solution well the first time he cut i think he was 19 and he he had a flashback and, but he didn't know what was happening to him, and it was so intense, and he just, you know, grabbed a knife. I think he was, he was at a pool party, and he, like, went inside this house and grabbed a knife and cut himself. And he says it, it creates a more manageable crisis than the one that's going on inside of your head because you have to stop and deal with the blood on your arm and, you know, the cut you've just made on your arm. first flashback there is a floating red ball of light this odd image produced a terror in me and the terror would only stop if I cut my wrist it basically creates a manageable crisis I've got to attend to this blood, and the other image will go away. The definition of trauma is when your reality is not seen or known. Mm-hmm. And this comes out in the film, this moment when Daryl is talking to a childhood friend. I have some things that I've always wanted to talk to you about, mm-hmm. just between us about the things that happened in the past mm-hmm. for, for me to get some closure mm-hmm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. And his friend didn't really believe that this was going on in his house. He didn't see anything. His mom and dad seemed perfectly fine to him. I'm thinking to myself, why do I not... Why is there no 
I was, it, it's hard to describe. It was, it, it, it was a. It why was a, is there no what? No, why have I no any kind of? of, of why have I not seen any of that? Why have I not seen it? Why would why do you why would you see it? It's not something that's going to happen in front of you or anybody else. And in some ways, this is when Daryl talks about it akin to being a person who has has been raped and is not believed. Mm-hmm. And you don't even know why you're doing it. For some people that do it, it's a way of creating a, man, a more manageable crisis than the one that's going on in your head. Um, and others, it's 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 a, a precise reenactment of rape. So if anyone would say, oh, that didn't happen, um, you know, someone needs to pay attention to these, these, these children who, who cut themselves. Yeah. They're not doing it for no reason. They're reenacting. It, that's a sign. That's a signpost. That's like something's happening in this house. I can't protect myself. You're an adult. Do something. Do something. This is a crime against nature. Okay, I committed against myself. Won't you ask me why? Talk a little bit more about that, because this this idea of not being believed or when people don't really think that could have happened, that's another mm-hmm. part of the story that you mm-hmm. portray yeah, in the film. I, well, that really is the trauma. When something has happened to you, and I mean, I'll use myself as an example and I, I did a TED Talk, and I talk about it in this talk, where something happened to me when I was very young, and I went to the people who were supposed to protect me, and they told me it didn't happen. They said, that didn't happen to you, and they left the room. And I was I was talking to, about a family friend who, who did it. And in that moment, so... What happened to me in that moment was I denied my reality. I told myself I wasn't worth it. Um, I wasn't worth being protected. I wasn't worth being believed. And uh, that, I guess the sky is yellow. Hmm. And deep down, you know the sky is blue. But you, you... you start attracting people who who tell you that the sky is yellow. And, you know, when there's abuse within a family, when there's neglect within a family, a child would rather deny that and say, my parent loves me. Because to to embrace that as a child, it's too much. Yeah. You, you can't shake up the tree like that, the family tree like that. And you also... It's like you have to let go of having that family member be that family member to you, what that family member is supposed to be to you. And then, you know, and then that that kid goes to school and your brain's rewired and you can't seem to focus in school. And then you get in trouble because your grades are failing and now you're sort of being called stupid and now you're sort of being called um, like a bad kid because you're not getting this grade, this A. And, you know, kids who have developmental trauma brains, you got to look at them like they have, they have a broken leg. Yeah. Maybe they have two broken legs. And we're asking them to run. Hmm. And they can't run. There's a really powerful moment where... Daryl Hammond is talking about this, this dream. I woke up at 3.30 a.m. and I'd been having this dream. And then in the dream, there was a little girl standing outside my window in the snow. And she was helpless and she was shivering and crying and afraid. And there was something very peculiar about her and about her eyes. And it turns out to be his mother. She was that little girl outside the window, helpless, being tortured and beaten, and turned into an animal. A pure human being, before someone ever did to her what she did to me. It gets it 
it's something that you've talked about, that it doesn't make any sense if you're going to try to break this cycle to vilify the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about this scene, if you would. Uh, yeah, it's a very important scene um, about breaking the cycle, about understanding the cycle, that this is a cycle. Um, something happened to his mother, and so she never was treated for her trauma. And so it it doesn't mean that every trauma victim becomes a perpetrator, you know, um, but but it, but the cycle is very common. Um, I had interviewed these nurses in Bangor, Maine, who are working with prenatal moms and dads, because I thought, well, how are we really going to break the cycle, mm. you know? Yeah. We got to go we got to go back. We got to go back before the baby is born. Right. We got to go back and help parents heal their own trauma before they have the babies. And uh so these nurses, they make these home visits. They they develop a connection, a connection with the moms and dads. Sometimes it's just a mom. Um and then they they uh administer help administer this this ACE test, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, which is a, uh, has ten questions, and if there's if you, if you answer four or more to these ten questions of trauma, uh, you know we know that um, four or more raises your increase of you know anxiety, depression, suicide, suicide. Four or more ACEs. Uh, increases your risk of suicide by twelve hundred percent. Wow! Um, and so, gosh, don't you want to understand that? Don't I mean? I I think it's a civil right for me. Like the that that there should be universal ACE, you know, testing. Uh, every doctor should do that with their patients because it affects us for you know for our whole life our our brains are affected our bodies are affected and so uh but i interviewed these nurses i i followed them doing these home visits and then i i i interviewed one of the moms who took the test and she she was on her third child she was had been living uh in a domestic violence situation she was actually leaving her her husband um uh, and you know had like figured out a way to make it on her own and had had a new job and and because she understood what the trauma was doing to her and to her to her babies hmm. and um and she wanted to break the cycle yeah yeah we need to understand our own trauma it is we it, we need to get to the root cause and dr vincent Folletti, who've who founded the ACE study with Dr. Robert Anda, said to me, we're treating the smoke and not the fire. Right. Let me ask you finally this. Um, There's a really nice moment when Daryl is talking to you in the film, and he it seems like he's just conceded that he has these injuries, that he has Mm -hmm. to work through them. He -hmm. says, I I have all these frailties, but, Mm -hmm. and this is how he puts it, but I won. You know, I'm hobbled significantly. It's like I, I got a limp. You know, I have these I have these frailties as a result of it. But I won. Well, it was a that was a a beautiful moment. Uh, you know, he says, "When you become more powerful than your perpetrator." there's there's nothing there's nothing better than that you know when you when you understand what happened in that everything that you've done that maybe was acting out sideways that you know those are all the ways that you tried to survive like because i i asked daryl uh i mean not daryl i'm sorry i asked uh, bessel van der Kolk, do you have to forgive your perpetrator and he said, no, 
trauma is usually about the victim trying to make amends for the perpetrator. The most important thing is forgiveness of yourself for having been as vulnerable, as scared, as angry, as frozen as you were. And forgiving yourself for all the ways you have tried to survive. So just take care of that. Just learn to forgive yourself for all the things you have done in order to survive. That's a big job. What we have to work on is forgiving yourself for all the ways you have tried to survive. And that is a big, a big job. And I just want to say it's really important that in no way am I saying or you know any of us saying that we need to exonerate bad behavior. But there's no way that we're going to break the cycle. I mean, everybody needs to be held accountable for, you know, bad behavior and heinous behavior and abuse and everything like that. But it's just about understanding, not exonerating, you know, not excusing, but it, but understanding so that we can break the cycle. So that and, and, and we know how to do that. We know how to break the cycle. We know how to prevent trauma. We're sitting on like a gold mine of solutions. Michelle Esrick, her film is Cracked Up, which you can come see next Wednesday. That's October 30th at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. For details, go to KUER.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. Our thanks to our intern, Natu Twe. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Christy Miners is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.